Hey, good morning. You know, a moment ago we were singing um, the words to that song. It says, you're perfect in all of your ways. And I have to tell you that um, Sandy was a good friend to a lot of us, and many of us knew her for uh, many years. And it's, and it's hard, even as a pastor, even as a guy who has studied theology most of my adult life, I don't always understand why God does some of the things he does. Uh, because in your mind you think you could have prevented this, you could have changed the course or done something differently or interfered, and then he chooses not to. But one thing I trust and one thing I know is that he's perfect in all of his ways. His ways are perfect. His ways are perfect. And I think Kevin nailed it when he said she was an encourager. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that have said that same thing, that that's just the word that comes to your mind. Uh, Kathy and I re remembered 20 years ago, Kathy's mom had cancer, and Sandy was writing her notes. You know, before Facebook, she was writing her and sending her notes all the way down in Coldwater, Mississippi. That's just so consistent with, with who she was. Do remember to, to pray for uh, Steve and Meg and Nick and Jackson and, you know, the family and the friends um, who loved her so much. Ah, okay. Um, summer, is, summer is a really good time for a lot of things. You know, I, I, I told you last week we're doing, we're doing a series. If, if you're a guest today, it's called Summer 7. And it's sort of this uh, loose coalition of scriptures uh, to just talk about some things that seem to be appropriate and fit into this season. And I really like summer. I've always liked summer. It meant you're out of school. Uh, I had a birthday. Uh, you know, it's, it's those kind of things. You get to kind of do a lot of fun stuff outside, which uh, is real appealing to me. Some of you like winter or fall or spring, and that's okay too. One other thing that summer is really good for is that it's a good time to get rid of all that old stuff that you don't need anymore. All that junk in your basement or your garage or your closet, and you think, you know what, summer's a good time. Our neighborhood where we live, and I've noticed a lot of other neighborhoods, that's when they have garage sales, and uh, that's when you see people stealthily driving through early, early on Saturday mornings, you know, to be the first one in. Uh, and, and get rid of all that stuff and make room, you know, take out all those old clothes, all those shirts that you thought were so cool and you're never going to wear again, and the ones you pull out and you look at it and you think, if I lost weight, I could wear that again. I'm not going to, and you put it back in, and then you, you, know, you keep buying more shirts, and after a while your closet's just packed, you know, so you eventually bite the bullet and pull some out so you can go buy new ones, you know, because that's what we do. That's what we do. Summer's a good time uh, to, get, to get rid of things. So I'm using that as this idea. Spiritually, what junk do you have in your life that you need to get rid of? This is a good time to do that. This is a good time before you get started back in another semester of school, before you really buckle down back at work, you know, because we, we, we tend to pull back, it seems like, maybe not in, in this culture uh, in the summer, before vacations or all of that, what are, some, what are some things you don't need in your life 
that you need to get rid of. Today's a good day to talk about that. Several years ago, I read a book uh, by Marie Kondo. Have you, have you read this? It's called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Has anybody else read, read this book? It's really good. And it has this great idea where you go through, you go through your closets and everything, and her, her thought is this. You hold something in your hand, and you ask this question. Does this give me joy? And if it doesn't give you joy, you toss it. You give it away, you sell it, you, you move it out. And you just keep the things that really spark joy in your life and in your heart. What happens to us spiritually is that sometimes there's, there are these things and there are these places in our heart and, it, and there's nothing joyful about it. Maybe it's an old habit or an old sin or just this, this go-to behavior that you've leaned into and it's been there for you maybe since you were a little girl maybe since you were just a young guy and there's no joy in it it's just there and it's stuck in your life it's time to toss it it's time to move on and to get past that Marie Kondo said this uh, I don't know where she is spiritually but this is a pretty good sentence listen to this It says, but when we really dwell into the reasons for why we can't let something go, there are only two, an attachment to the past or a fear for the future. An attachment to the past or a fear for the future. Now today, I want you to see how this applies in one specific guy's life and let that be Uh, kind of a metaphor, an illustration for all of us, because I think we have a lot in common with him. We know him. uh, Typically, he's not named by name, but he is the rich, young ruler. We don't want to get rid of uh, certain things in our lives because I think we fear a future without it because it makes us feel secure or safe. You know what? That's a dangerous place for anything to hold in our hearts that's not part of our relationship with the Lord. A song we sang a moment ago and it said, you're calling me deeper. You're calling me deeper into Christ. There's some things that will keep you from going deeper and keep you from knowing joy that you're just holding on to. Well, let's read the scripture and, and, uh, about this event that happened in the life of Jesus and in this young man. This actually appears, I think, in all of the synoptic gospels, and we get a little different uh, viewpoint. You know, you look at it from a different angle from each one of these. I've chosen to read this uh, out of Mark chapter 10 uh, today. It's also in uh, Matthew. It's in Luke. Here we go in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud... Uh, which wasn't a part of that original list, honor your father and mother, 
He's just listing these things. And he said to them, teacher. And I always kind of imagine at this point he went, I'm in. Just quietly he thought to himself, I've been doing all of that. I think I'm good. Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. I've been doing that since I was a little boy. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come back here and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Folks, I got to tell you, and I... You know, I'm a pastor, so you'd expect that I spend a lot of time reading the Word, and I, and I, and I have. I've read the Bible for years now, but this, is, this has got to be one of the most challenging and troubling and kind of surprising stories or events that occurred in, in all the New Testament. I mean, if I were writing this, you know, I, I, I don't think I'd have had him say this and Jesus say that, and I think I just didn't see it go in that direction. I don't quite grasp this this is hard and Jesus in this is very dangerous to all of our notions of what is spirituality what is Christianity what is the, what is the the fundamental of, of of our faith and what is it that defines a good life I mean, I've got reference points, you've got reference points, and, and, and as we walk through this event, we're going to find that, that Jesus, the life that he offers, the good life that he has, leads to real life and real freedom. Because I don't know how to measure that. I mean, I think I'm a pretty nice guy. I mean, I think I'm a pretty good person. You probably do too. So this this passage kind of bugs me a little bit. I mean, it kind of bothers me because of a couple of things. One, the first thing is uh, I'm rich. Like this guy, I'm wealthy. And so are you. I know what you're thinking. When I say that, you're thinking... 
I'm not. I'm off the hook on this one because I'm not really rich. Yeah, you are. Um, And I know what we do. We always compare ourselves up and never down. But I'm just going to kind of give you an idea. Um, There are, and and you can do this at home if you've got a computer or a phone. um, There are several internet tools out there that you can go to. And you just, you plug in maybe your assets and your debt and your annual income and all of that. And then what it does is it calculates that. And you can compare that to local people, people in the U.S., people around the world. So I did that, and to try to give it a little accuracy, because I don't know about these things, you know, I mean, where did that information come from? But they were pretty consistent, and I tried several. What I found out that is that my family, that I am in Knoxville, Tennessee, in the United States of America, 2017, I'm at 50%. I am right in the middle of where people are in our city. I don't know. You know. I try to predict this ahead of time and think, I wonder where I'll be. Will I be down the bottom? Will I be up right, I mean, right, nailed it, 50%. So half of you are richer than me and half of you are poorer. <laughs> I don't know what I think about that. Um, our family's pretty average. In other words, we're average in, in, in this area. However, when I looked at the global comparison. I am in the top 1.6 percentage of people in the world, in the global community. 1.6. I'm almost in the 1% of wealthy people. That is over 30 times the global average income. So stinking rich. And so are you. In fact, I got to thinking about the rich young ruler because it, it makes a note in every passage that the guy's wealthy. And so I looked up that word and it means, in the Greek, wealthy. <laughs> he owned a lot of stuff. He had a lot of income. He was just wealthy. But I got to thinking about all the things he didn't have, like electricity and air conditioning and transportation, and and medical care, and all the things that we have. And I thought, we are richer. The poorest among us are richer than the rich young ruler. I mean, do you think he would would keep his life? Or I mean, I wouldn't trade my life for his. I don't know what kind of chariot he drove. I don't know know any of that. But I know I wouldn't trade the variety of foods that I have and all the things that, that we have. So I'm rich. So it bothers me. The second thing is, is that I like to think that we're fairly decent people. I know the rules of being good, and so do you, right? And for many of us in this room, we're regular church attenders, so that by itself bunches up a notch, right? We go to church, be nice to people, don't murder folks around you, um, take care of your kids, give some money away at least a little bit every now and then. Don't shoplift at West Town Mall. Avoid trans fats when you can. Reduce your carbs. White sugar. <laughs> Recycle. Make decent grades. Mow the yard. 
Do some volunteer work when you can. I mean, we, we kind of know, and those are some of the things I would plug in and I would use as a comparison to say, well, you know what, I kind of I do all these things and I, I'm, I'm nice in traffic most of the time. and yeah, So I think I'm a pretty good guy. So is there anything else that I've missed? And the funny thing about that is, is that we just sort of make that up, right? We create what we think is our goodness. And we always compare ourselves to people who are not as good as us, not to those who are better in some way, whether it's moral behavior or or generosity or whatever. And we always walk away thinking, yeah, I think I'm pretty good. I think I'm going to be okay. And I think of it like this. If I were to say, hey, how did the Braves do yesterday? Well, I think they won. They scored three. What? Yeah, they made three runs. Uh, what'd the other team make? I don't know. We got three, so I'm pretty sure we won. Well, unless you know what the other, how many runs the other team got, you don't know. Right? Does it make sense? How the volunteers do this weekend? Oh, I'm pretty sure we won. We made two touchdowns and a field goal. What'd the other team make? Uh, I don't know. Do you see how just knowing half of that, it it really doesn't tell you anything? So when I think I'm good, and I say, well, here's all my goodness, well, what's the standard? What's the score? Yeah, I really don't know. I don't know what the expectation, I don't know what it means if I win, but I'm just going to go by half of it. So that's what you do when you're counting on your goodness. So is my definition of being good enough really good enough? So I have to ask, and you have to ask, the same question that this guy was asking Jesus. Is there anything else I need to do to be saved? I've got this little doubt. I've got this, I think I'm pretty good, but just to make sure, is there anything else I need to do? Verse 17 says that Jesus started on the way. Literally, it means he was on the road. Uh, my Bible says he was setting out on his journey. I found it kind of interesting, though, uh, that the Gospel of Mark and other places, particularly in Paul's writing, there's kind of this code, there's this subtle code going on that we, we don't get uh, the, the language. Uh, but when he speaks sometimes, uh, there's like a double meaning for that. And whenever you see on the road, in fact, you know, before we were called Christians, we were called people of the way, people who were on the road people who are journeying. And that was code for people who believed in Jesus. People who were following Jesus were said to be people on the way to God through Christ. So I just found it was interesting. Maybe it doesn't mean anything, but I think it was kind of cool that it says Jesus was on the road. I think that's a code for discipleship. So Jesus is on the way, and this young man runs up to him, and it was very undignified in that time to run anywhere. You just didn't. That was not sophisticated. But he runs, he gathers up, his, you know, and he runs to the guy. He falls on his knees, so he just kind of like humiliates himself. He's red. I mean, I think he's sincere. I don't think he's just there like, oh, I've heard about Jesus. Let me check the box. Let me just meet this guy and check it. No, I think he's, re- I think he's being real. I think he, the guy, he really wants to know. So he falls on his knees in front of everybody, even though he's rich, he's young. 
and he's a ruler. And I looked up the word ruler, and I thought, what does that mean? Because this passage just calls him a young man. But it meant a person with authority, particularly religious authority. He could have been in the Sanhedrin. He probably more was a Pharisee because he was interested in eternal life. And I think the Sadducees are the ones who said, we don't even believe in that. So um, he was probably leaning this way. But somehow, somewhere in that community, he either owned a business, but he was over people, and he's young. Have you ever had a position of authority when you're young and been really intimidated by that? And you sit down, and there's all these older-than-you people around you, and you think, uh, I'm the boss, and this is really kind of weird, kind of uncomfortable. Well, this guy was a young ruler, and he's wealthy. Whatever it is that he did, he gotten rich. So he's enthusiastic, and he's sincere, and the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that verb, inherit, he goes, I understand how things work. If I put myself in the right position, then I inherit things. You know, if you're a part of a family that's wealthy or have any means at all, and, and someone passes away, then they leave you their goods, and you just inherit it. And all you did was put yourself, or somebody put you, in the right place to inherit something. And pretty much all you did was be born you inherit. He says, I want to do that. I want to inherit eternal life. What do I got to do? He's ready to do something. Let me do. What do, I, what, do, what, do you, what do you want me to do? And I think that implies that his spirituality was wrapped around achievement. And I think, I'll say this gently, but without apology, I think some of your spirituality is wrapped around your, your achievements. How many Bible studies you've done, how young you were saved, how many you were baptized, or you give a certain... And we, we start, consciously or unconsciously, we start putting a lot of faith or a lot of confidence in what we've done. And somehow this guy had gravitated toward that, and he looks at the... He says, you know what, I've done all these things since I was a little kid. I remember I was in VBS, and, you know, I learned this, and I started doing it, and he goes, I, I think I've got it together. And if you're there, and if you've got confidence because you're a church member or because you're faithful, or two, uh, there's something else you need to know. He says, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? So he says, I I'm ready to do something. Give me something to do, uh, because really I don't so much need a Savior as I need somebody like you to help me save myself. I'm doing pretty good, but it's just to make sure, is there anything else? And Jesus starts his response by saying, so why do you call me good? You just think everybody, and mentions a couple of times how the disciples kept being astonished and kept being surprised. And they were surprised because Jesus was dissing this guy's wealth a little bit. And in that day, it was seen that if you're good, you'd be blessed. Like, uh... Uh, materially, I can't think of the right word, financially, you know, you're, you're good, you're blessed, you're good, you're blessed, you're good, you're blessed. And so that meant, you know, this guy must be really pretty good, Jesus. He's got a lot of stuff. He's got a lot of money. We're kind of surprised that you're going after him like this. So the first thing out of Jesus' mouth, he goes, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And you didn't see that coming. I think that Jesus, and I've thought about this, I, I believe Jesus is challenging this man. In modern day language, maybe Jesus would, would have said it like this. Do you even know what good is? What, what, what are you talking about? Good. 
What does that mean to you? Do you assume that you can just run up to me and throw out this this question and I'm going to toss back to you a quick, easy, simple answer to your spiritual journey, this pursuit you're on? Not the way it works. I also think because of Jesus' answer when he said, no one's good except God, it's like a subtle hint at his own deity. You say, I'm good? Well, I am, and there's a reason for that. Then Jesus gives a more traditional expected answer. Okay, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not commit, you know, give false testimony. I'm going to throw in, a, do not defraud, uh, honor your father and mother, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the guy just, I just picture him going, oh, boy, oh, good, oh, good, 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 because this is my wheelhouse. This is where I'm strong. It's finally paying off. I've done all the right things. Yes, yes. He goes, yeah. And he tries to be humble, and he says, yeah, well, uh, yeah, I've been doing all these things since I was a little boy. So, and you'd think Jesus would be impressed and go, well, then you got it. That's it. Have a nice day. Thanks for dropping by. But instead, Jesus just, just hammers this guy in a completely different direction. And, and you can notice, and I love this part. This is probably my favorite part of this event, is that before Jesus does anything before the story progresses and this moves on it says this Jesus looks at him and loves him you may read right past that there are different words in the Greek New Testament for to be able to see or to look at something there's words that mean a glance or a look or watching something and then there's this word that means to look intently, to study, to analyze, to look inside. And that is the word that's used here. It's in this moment that it just got quiet. And before anyone spoke, there was a pause. And Jesus just looked at the guy. Any of you remember a guy named Manly Beasley? He was an evangelist and an author and a preacher. He was one of the most intense men I've ever known or heard in my life. He was like having Jeremiah or Isaiah in the room. He was just so prophetic in his nature. I went to, it wasn't Little Rock, Arkansas. It was West Memphis, Arkansas to hear him uh, for this luncheon kind of event. And all the tables were filled up except for one up close. Now, I was scared to death of Manly Beasley. He preached here at Calvary before he died. Um, And I remember sitting at that round table and looking up at him. And every time he'd look at me, I'd think, "Ah, he sees me. It's just like he could just look right through me with this spiritual x-ray vision. I think, oh, he knows everything. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, this guy. What is it about him? I think that's the way Jesus was looking at this guy, but with one thing that was different. This is not the way maybe your mama looks at you or your teacher looks at you or your coach looks at you. Jesus looked and he could see everything 
all the junk, all the stuff you cover up and that you hide because you know if somebody else saw it, they're going to reject you. They're going to judge you. And you're going to feel that shame again. And so you, you keep it disguised. Jesus' vision just pierces through all that. And he looks in this guy and he sees him. And here's the, the beautiful, astonishing part that comes right on the heels of that. And it said, and Jesus was so mad at him because he could see all of his stuff. But Jesus, Jesus just thought, How do, I can't believe, you know, you may have acted good on the outside, but I see all the way to your heart. No, you know what, none of that. It says Jesus looked, he saw, and he loved him. Jesus sees your stuff. He sees it all. And he loves you. He loves you. So he loves this guy. And he looks at him. But his love doesn't stop him from telling the truth. It, in fact, it, it, it fuels that. It motivates Jesus. I, I, you know, because I love you, I can't just let you go. I've got to tell you the next thing because I just love you so much. And this may be hard to hear. He says, there's one thing you lack. And maybe the guy thought, oh, just one thing? Oh, this is going to be easy. I'll probably knock this out, go get some lunch. You know, what is the thing I need to do? There's one thing you lack. Oh, it's just, just one, one little thing. Go sell everything you have and give all that to the poor and you're going to have treasure in heaven. And then I want you to come back here. I'll still be around. And follow me. Become part of these guys and one of us. Get on the road with us. Can you imagine that moment? I mean, did anybody expect that to be the next thing? Uh, I'm sorry, did you, say, did you say sell everything and not keep any of it and just give it all away and then come back here? Is that what you said? Yeah. So when I read this, am I, what do I do? Am I, do I think, uh, is, do I have to sell everything too? Is this the prerequisite for discipleship for everybody? You remember those monks in the Middle Ages? You know, in the medieval times, and they would settle, they'd take vows of poverty, and they'd go live in these places, and they'd do kind of weird things, and it was all mysterious and everything, and they thought they were being holy by doing that, like they're proving something to God. No, it was for this guy. I want us to realize this. Jesus isn't after your money or whatever. He's after you. He wants us. Years ago, um, I was in a, in a youth camp, you know, like a retreat center kind of environment, and I remember the speaker used this illustration. He said, you know, it's like there is this throne in your life. And I hope this isn't cliche to some of you who've been in youth camps and on youth retreats. He said, there's a throne. There's a throne. And then there's all these things in your life. There's, there's sports, and uh, there, there's relationships, 
and, and maybe there's your job, and there's school, and there's your family, and maybe here's your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, um, uh, here, here's movies and music. I don't know where those came. Uh, and it says there's all these things are around this throne. What is it you put on the throne? And see, some things you think, yeah, that would work. I could put my, I could put that, I could put my hobbies on the, on the that fits pretty good. But then there's some things you think, okay, I'm going to need some help here because we're going to put this on the throne. And you think, oh, that's ridiculous, that's absurd. And Jesus uses an absurd picture in just a moment to kind of say the same thing. He goes, this is not going to fit. In fact, nothing really fits on this throne. You know what's been on my throne for the m- most of my life? Me. Pretty comfortable place. Some of you are like that too. You're on the throne of your life. And what Jesus is saying to this guy, it's really not about the money, but that's the one thing. That's the one thing that has become your God. And that's, for him, he said, money is what's on the throne of your life. Jesus said, I want to be your king. I want to be on the throne of your life. So let me ask you. You know it's coming, right? What is on the throne of your life? Really? Not the Sunday school answer, not what you want, just in you where nobody can see but him. Who or what is on the throne? Because, folks, whatever is on that throne, that is your God. And that controls all the other areas. So Jesus just picks one because he knows what's controlling this guy is his money. So he just picks that with the rich young ruler. And he says, you got to get that off the throne. So here's what we're going to do. Something radical. Jesus is asking the rich young ruler, put me on the throne of your life. And your life is going to become infinitely better. It's going to become something so beautiful. And you're going to store up these treasures in heaven. But... Like a lot of us, our sophisticated, successful, wealthy young man, he doesn't trust in the Jesus better life. He trusts in what he's already been doing. And there's this struggle real quickly in his heart and in his soul. And he's, he's looking at everything. He's feeling this pull toward Jesus. And Jesus is looking in his eyes. And he almost wants to turn away, but he can't. You know, and he's thinking there's something there. There's something really, really powerful in this guy. And he wants to, but he looks back at what he's always known. I'm a nice person and I'm rich. I think that's going to be okay. I think that's going to get me in. And so that's what he chooses. Here's the crazy thing about that. My scripture says he walked away very sorrowful. 
It's just the word for sad. And maybe that's what your version said. He, he, he thinks, this is my choice and this is what I'm going to pick. But when he walks away, it doesn't bring him joy. It doesn't spark joy in it. It's all that wealth and everything is just... He goes away and it's sad. And some of you, you know, you might walk out of here today and you think, you know, I'm going to hang on to whatever it is that's on your throne. It's not going to... You're not going to feel any different than you already do. So he goes away sad and it's this really unusual moment and it's real awkward uh, in this setting Jesus turns to the disciples and he said how hard is it it is so hard for wealthy people for good people for nice guys to enter the kingdom of God and he comes out with this it's kind of humorous, and it, he says, it's, easier for, it's really easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. They're thinking, that's just a ridiculous picture. And I think he chose camel because that was the largest known animal in, you know, in the Middle East at that time. Nobody could think of anything bigger than a camel or anything smaller than the eye of a needle. So Jesus just comes up with this, this word picture. He said, in, in other words, he says, guys, what I'm saying is that it's impossible for rich and respected people like us to get saved. It's that despair, that sinking in your, you know, you just think, well, where does that leave me? He goes, yeah, it's, it's absolutely impossible. However, with God, all things are possible. What? Are you telling me there's some hope are you telling me i've got a chance are you telling me he goes yeah getting right and staying right with god and trusting christ with your whole heart it isn't just hard it's impossible and i don't know if that's your strategy or if that's what you're going after even as a follower of jesus you may have put your faith in jesus as a as a child as a little boy or girl and, and you think now it's all up to me and i've i've done that part but now i'm just going to i'm going to do what i can do and i'm going to add to that and uh, what are you going to add to grace he said that's impossible and the bible tells us that it's not just that we have this scrawny dull faith no, it's that you are spiritually dead. I mean, absolutely dead. But the good news is, is that God can, can raise spiritually dead people like me and like you. And he can change our rebellious hearts. And he can make us something new and different. We become his friends and his children. So you just got two options. There's just two options. There's your way. There's the good way. I'm going to try it on my own. I'm going to try to be good enough. I don't know what the score is, but I'm just going to keep trying to rack up points with God. Or there's Jesus' way, where you say, I'm done with that. I'm just going to die to myself. I'm going to abandon that. And I'm just going to throw myself on your grace and your mercy. Our way is all about being good enough, what's proper, what's everything respectable, what just feels right. 
And I find, and don't you find this to be true, that that's pretty much a snapshot of modern lukewarm Christianity? It's not hot, it's not cold, it's just, it is what it is. And it all comes back to me. It's all dependent on me being a good enough person by whatever standard I've come up with. God's way begins when you know that Jesus is looking at you. He's looking in you. And he loves you. In spite of all that stuff, he loves you. And it continues when you, in your heart, you hear Jesus say, you know what, I don't want your... All your... (laughs) your goodness and your lukewarm, conventional, safe approach. And, and I don't want all that. You don't impress me. I just want you. Just come to me just as you are. Just come to me. I don't want all your works, your activity, your efforts, and all of that. I just want your love. I just want to be in a relationship with you. That's all. I was kidding with the tech guys this morning. I said, how many times have I quoted C.S. Lewis in a message? I said, do you think people kind of get the idea that maybe he's one of my favorite authors? C.S. Lewis compares this whole thing to like a trip to the dentist. Here's what he said. Our Lord is like a dentist. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of one particular sin which they are ashamed of or which is obviously spoiling daily life. Well, he can cure it all right. He will. But he will not stop there. There may be all you ask. That may be all you ask. But if once you call him in, he's going to give you the full treatment. He wants to heal all of you. You know, every place in you. But if we keep putting ourselves in the center of our lives, if we keep putting us and other things on the throne... He can't bring that healing like he longs to do. And the good news of the gospel is that you can find his mercy. And it's deep and it's strong and it's, and it's, and it's genuine. And sometimes this will come to you in the worst possible time, in the middle of a crisis. So what are you going to do? Will you give up the good way and go with the God way, or are you just going to stay with your plan? I can tell you, good way doesn't work. How good's good enough? C.S. Lewis also said this, and I love this one of my favorite quotes of him. I've written it in one of my journals. He said this Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you'll find him, and with him... Everything else thrown in. The rich young ruler had a lot of religious, spiritual clutter in his life and in his heart. And he walked away sad that day because he wasn't ready to clean it all out. 
He didn't want to give it up. He was a spiritual hoarder, and his life looked like your garage or your basement or your attic or your closet or all the drawers. Summer is a perfect time to do some cleaning out. Will you, under his grace, by faith, allow the Holy Spirit to come in and to begin removing all the clutter and all the junk that you've allowed to collect in your heart and your life? Here's a question I'll leave you with. How will you spend your one and only beautiful opportunity of a life that God has given you?